Well, Father, we come before you on this day, at this time, dedicated to you so that we can sit together as the household of God and hear your word preached to us. Father, I pray that uh, this message in particular and this passage in particular will minister to our hearts, encourage us uh, who need encouragement, convict us who needs to be convict, reinforce, change, transform our mind, change our thinking, conform our hearts to you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll do a work in assisting my preaching, that your word will speak to all of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. On August 29th, 2005, Hurricane Katrina made landfall just outside of New Orleans. When it was all said and done, over 1,400 people uh, passed away. And it did $125 billion of damage. Even though New Orleans did not get a direct hit, the, the storm surge pushed up the water level, up above the levees, and then it overwhelmed the, the pumping stations, leaving many of the poor precincts in New Orleans uh, flooded and damaged. But that wasn't the only casualty or, or thing that was lost. Hurricane Katrina also struck and canceled the Southern Decadence LGBT celebration. I'm not sure if you've heard about this, but it's a LGBT celebration that actually draws bigger crowds than Mardi Gras. According to Wikipedia, the celebration is very similar to Mardi Gras in style, and this is according to Wikipedia, but more sexual in nature, which says a lot. And so when I was living in Southern California, we were having conversations that, was this the judgment of God, where God sent Katrina to judge a wicked city that is hosting a wicked event? And we are saying all of this as we are living in the San Fernando Valley, which is the porn production capital of the world, and there's these seismic events called earthquakes. Right? There was this tragedy that, that, that happened, and there's this impulse to say, well, they got what they deserved. And, and this is a natural tendency. Do you remember when the disciples were walking by a blind man, and they asked, uh, they asked Jesus, this is actually in Romans 9, 1 through 2, they saw a man blind from birth, and the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What did he do or what did his parents do to deserve this fate? This is something uh, that psychologists call the just world hypothesis. Uh, the term was coined by researchers at the University of Kansas in the 1960s. They actually did an experiment where they brought a bunch of people together. Actually, it was a bunch of women together. And these women would sit behind a wall and watch one of their peers uh, perform some simple task. And whenever they did the simple task wrong... The, the subject was shocked. 
And so the observer would watch this and be in distress and, and want, to, want to stop it. But when they were told that they could not intervene, researchers noticed that they started to make demeaning and devaluing comments about the person being shocked. Like there must be a good reason why they are being punished. There is an instinct to look at the tragedies of others and say they got what they deserved. And we see this mindset in the people that Jesus addresses in Luke chapter 13, 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Of those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And you told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now this passage follows on the heels of promised judgment. Remember how Jesus is telling his disciples that the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect. He talks about how he came to cast fire upon the world and, and were that it were already kindled. But Jesus had to be baptized by the fire first. He would die on the cross. But the insinuation is, after that, he is now waiting to come back down in judgment. And then he tells them, make sure you settle your account with your accuser, which in this case would be God. If you repent now, there will be mercy. If not, you'll pay to the last penny. And then building on this idea of judgment is a subtle accusation that people who had their blood spilled by Pilate were getting what they deserved. They are being judged. And Salome, the tower of falling on someone, the insinuation was they got what they deserved. And Jesus turns this around. He challenges this just world hypothesis, the idea that only the wicked people get what they deserve, that sin is always repaid in real time. And he says, you know what? The teaching of tragedy is not that the wicked people get what they deserve, and the reason why you avoided the tragedy is because you're not wicked. The reason why you're not suffering right now must be because you're doing something right. The only reason you are not doing anything, not, not suffering right now or anything good is happening to you is because of the mercy of God. 
The teaching of tragedy is this. Unless you repent, you're next. Unless you repent, you are next. Now, as I mentioned, the natural bent of humanity is one of control. We want to have a say in how this world is governed. We want to believe that the tragedies that happen to other people will never happen to us if we take matters into our own hands and do the right thing. The idea that we live at the mercy of God and that he's one who decides what happens to us, whether good or bad, can be rather frightening. That is why works-based righteousness, works-based performance, the idea of karma, the idea of only bad people getting bad things is so appealing to us. But Jesus makes it clear that if you're walking away with that teaching from tragedies, you're getting it all wrong. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how, how should you respond to the tragedies of others. And we're going to do so by answering two questions. One, how should you respond to tragedies? And then two, why are you not experiencing a tragedy? And in answering this, I think, one, this will give us a better view of God, the gospel, and even how to minister to other people who are suffering. So the first question that we need to answer is, how should you respond to tragedies? Look at verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, this is the only recorded instance of this. We don't have extra biblical accounts of, of Pilate doing this activity, but there are plenty of extra biblical accounts that talk about the bad actions of Pilate. For instance, Pilate wanted to build some infrastructure in Jerusalem, and he wanted to build an aqueduct to transport water. And to fund the aqueduct, he took from the temple treasury, which was funded by the temple tax. Now, the good people of Jerusalem, who were faithful Jews, said, what are you doing? The temple tax is to pay for the temple. So they assembled a mob in protest. And what Pilate did was he took some of his soldiers had them disguise themselves as Jews, gave each one of them a dagger, dispersed them throughout the mob, told the mob to dismiss, and when they didn't dismiss, he gave a signal. This is going to Josephus. And the soldiers took out their daggers and savagely stabbed the mob, killed many people. He was somebody who would try to control his people by bloodshed. So this is very consistent. When it talks about blood being mingled with the sacrifices, this likely refers to the Passover, the one time of year when a lay Jew would go up to the temple and participate in the temple sacrifices. They did something that rubbed Pilate the wrong way. Perhaps he su suspected some seditious behavior. And so as the blood of bulls and goats and lambs were being spilled in the temple, these Galileans are being slaughtered so that their blood mixes with the blood of the sacrifices. And Jesus hears this hot take. Did he hear the news? News flash. Pilate murders a bunch of pilgrims. And he answered them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Jesus doesn't uphold these Galileans as martyrs. As true patriots, 
he addresses the, the sentiment of the crowd who, who seem to believe that they must have done something wrong to deserve this outcome. And he says, do you think that there were sinners than you? Instead of saying they got what's coming, Jesus says, unless you repent, same thing's going to happen to you. Verse 3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he introduces another tragedy. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Now, the oldest wall in Jerusalem is kind of, yeah, is towards the north of the city, and it does this pivot around the Pool of Siloam, and, and scholars speculate that a tower was built at that junction. Now, it could have been repaired, perhaps they were constructing it, but whatever happened, it collapsed. It was a construction catastrophe. 18 people didn't know what hit them. This was not a case of they might have done something wrong to get on the wrong side of Pilate. This was just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And yet, there was this understanding that, well, God got them. They did something to deserve that. There was a special judgment on these people. The judgment shows that they must have been wicked. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, Jesus confronts them on what's called victim shaming, right? When somebody suffers, you find some reason why they are responsible for their own suffering. You know, if, if these Galileans just played by the rules and did what was expected and not cause a ruckus, they'd still be alive. If the people who were working on the Tower of Siloam just followed OSHA standards and held to their training, this could have been avoided. If that girl would address more modestly, she would not have been raped. Do you see the problem with this? You're blaming the victims of the tragedy, and it's almost like it's their fault, and I know that if I do the right thing, it will never happen to me. But Jesus makes it very clear that everybody is going to suffer a tragic fate. Now, he's talking about death in this instance when he talks about the Galileans dying. But he promises an even worse fate. You will perish unless you repent. Right? For the wages of sin is death. Death is the severing of the soul from the body. It is a sign of divine judgment, right? Everybody who dies, dies because they sinned. The wages of sin is death. But I think Jesus is actually taking this beyond that to perishing. When you fail to repent, you not only die, you perish for all eternity. And what you see in death continues for all of eternity. That is the fate of everyone. And so instead of saying they got what they deserve, the idea is, well, I actually deserve that and even worse. See, the reason why we're drawn to this whole just world hypothesis is we have some sense of, of control, right? We live in a very chaotic world. You hear about terrorists crossing a border, abducting people, raping and, and killing innocent 
participants in festivals and living, right? Uh, you have the, the mother who, who wakes up and discovers her, her dead infant. You have a young man who has a tragic cancer diagnosis. And you, you think, what can I do to make sure that never happens to me? And there's this idea that if I do the right things, make the right decisions... I can avoid it. And then there's an insinuation that because they made the wrong decision, that's why they got what they deserved. So you look at, let's say, COVID, right? That was a chaotic time. There's a lot of speculation about how to avoid it. Why do people get it? Why do some people die? Why don't others? And so if you knew somebody who, who died of COVID, what was the first question that people would ask? Did they get vaccinated? Oh, they didn't? Well, that explains it. Or, conversely, somebody has had heart issues and had to go to the emergency room. And what would people ask? Did he get vaccinated? Oh, he did? Well, that explains it. Right? There was a judgmentalism. There was this belief that if you make these certain decisions, you can avoid the worst fate. But tragedies are are not meant to teach you how you can avoid tragedy. Tragedies are meant to teach you that that is actually going to happen to you. You see, with the just world hypothesis, a tragedy where wicked people die and only wicked people die, that's not a tragedy. That is God cleansing the earth of sinners, right? They got what they deserved. That's why they died. As long as I behave myself, I'll be okay. Instead of tragedies being a a sign of lament that, that there are people who are suffering, there is something wrong with this world. There is something dysfunctional. There's something just just not right. This is the sentiment of the world that we see in in Romans 8, 20 through 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that all the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Right? Tragedies sober us. Why do some people suffer and others don't? Why do, why do children suffer, right? When children suffer, it's an assault on the just world hypothesis, right? There's something broken. There's something that needs to be changed. There's an acknowledgement that the only hope that we have for this world is a new world to come. That the only thing that can fix this brokenness in our life and in this world is not our good behavior, but it is a Messiah who would take the curse of sin upon himself on the cross by being baptized in God's wrath and overcoming it by rising again and then returning to establish a world without tragedy that's completely under his rule. You see, ultimately, Jesus is saying, you deserve a fate worse than what happened to those Galileans who were slaughtered by Pilate. You, you deserve a fate worse than the Tower of Siloam falling on you. 
The reason why you are still alive is not because of your good behavior. And then he goes on to explain and answer the next question, why are you not experiencing a tragedy? Instead of thinking about how other people are getting what they deserve, the question is, why aren't you getting what you deserve? And he tells them this parable. Verse 6, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, but I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? So the man plants a tree in a vineyard, and by vineyard, think garden, right? You had fields and vineyards. Vineyards had more than just vines. So you had this fig tree, and fig trees could grow to be 15 to 25 feet. So it took up a lot of, a, a lot of sunlight. It absorbed a lot of water. It absorbed a lot of nutrients. The whole garden paid the price for having a fig tree in its midst, and that would be worth it. If the fig tree gave figs. But after three years of maturity, the fig tree is not producing. The, the cost of keeping this tree alive is, is diminishing the returns on the other fruit in the garden. So, he has a conversation in verse 8. He says, why should it take up the ground? And this is the response of the vine dresser. Sir, let it alone this year also. Until I dig around it and put on manure, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, cut it down. The vine dresser says, let me just give some extra love and attention. We'll give it one more year, put a little extra care, and we'll see what happens, right? We, you've had it this long, and the, and the owner says, okay. So how do you decode this parable? Well, the fig tree is representative of Israel. Common imagery in the Old Testament about it being a tree planted in a vineyard. And Israel was a privileged people, according to Paul in Romans 9, 4 through 5. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Right? Jesus ministered in their midst. God gave them promises and blessings. He spoke through their prophets, and yet they're not producing fruit. And so the owner of the vineyard, which would be God, wants to cut down the tree. And Jesus asked for another chance. But the person who asked for another chance ends up being crucified by them. And so... God cuts them down through the agency of Roman wrath in the judgment on Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The general Titus marched against the city. And if he thought blood would be spilled by Pilate, Titus spilled more. If he thought the Tower of Siloam was a great catastrophe, try breaching the walls. It was an absolute disaster for Jerusalem. It, it caused the, the nation of Israel to perish. Now, some people will speculate that this is permanent, that God is done with Israel, that they are never to rise and return again, and they have been replaced by the church. But that goes beyond what this parable is teaching. If you were to round this parable out with the teaching of Romans chapter 11, you see that while they were destroyed, God has given up on them, and there will be a future time. But the point is, 
The only reason why you have not experienced these catastrophes is because of the mercy of God. Don't think that God hasn't judged you because you're being righteous. You're not being judged because God is being patient with you. He is being merciful to you. It's not because of your righteousness. You see, our our tendency is to believe that righteous behavior can ameliorate tragic results. You have a friend of yours, and they have a child who has gone off the rails and rebelled. As somebody who loves your children, raising them up in the church, that is your worst nightmare. And you think, what can I do to make sure my child doesn't follow that path? And you discover a nice proverb. Proverb 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So if I do this, my children will not rebel. Why did they rebel? Because their parents did not obey this scripture. Another friend of yours gets cancer. You think, I would never want that to happen to me. So in addition to the special diet you discovered, you look at the passage in Proverbs 3, 1 through 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. So if I keep the Lord's commandments, he will lengthen my days. Huh. Well, why did they get cancer? Why did they die young? Well, they must have been doing something wrong. Now, what's the problem with that? The Proverbs are observations, not promises. Two, when we read it this way, we have this illusion of control that righteous behavior leads to wonderful results. But the author of Ecclesiastes pops the balloon in Ecclesiastes 7.15 when he says, In my vain life... I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Right? Sometimes our life does not go according to the just world script. Do you know any righteous men who died young? I know. I know one. His name is Jesus. Died in his 30s. Do you know any unrighteous man who lived a long time? Stalin lived till his 70s and died of natural causes. Well, Jesus volunteered. He doesn't count. Well, what about Job? He was viewed as the most righteous man on earth. And Satan says, you know, the only reason, God, that he's righteous is because you reward him for his righteousness. If you take away the rewards and the blessings, he's going to curse you to your face. And so God says, okay, try. And he takes away everything that he holds precious. His children. His wealth. All of it swept away. He doesn't curse God, and then God takes away his health. He does leave his wife, and his wife tells him to curse God and die. But he was suffering. And as we keep on reading in the book of Job, he is surrounded by silent counselors, which was the best advice they can give, which was nothing, right? But then they begin to open their mouths and, and help Job 
interpret what just happened. And here's some of their interpretations. Eliphaz says in Job 4, 7 through 9, Remember who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Thus up Job. Bildab lectures in Job 8.20. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. Elihu tells Job in Job 34.11-12. For according to the work of man he will repay him, and according to his ways he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. And again, in 36, 6 through 7, He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw His eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, He sets them forever, and they are exalted. In their mind, God is like this vending machine. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. If you're getting bad, you must be doing something bad. If you're getting good, you must be doing something right. Isn't that appealing, right? I can control my fate through always doing something right. That is the default position. Gives us control. We sprinkle in a little bit of religion. Sure, you have to judge other people, but that's the cost of being the master of your own fate. What's the problem with the just world hypothesis? Number one, a just world hypothesis diminishes God. You believe that if you do the right thing, God is obliged, obligated to give you the right outcome. It's to treat God like you're some sort of vending machine that when you put in these coins and push this button, you get the Cheez-Its. Or he is a command prompt. If you type in these commands, his programming mandates this kind of response. Or he is a a, a God who kind of wound up the universe and then just lets it go with the laws in place so that you always get a predictable result. And if you kind of know his rules and you know his system like a skilled computer programmer, you can control your fate. And you can make sure that bad things never happen to you. God is almost detached. His will has been surrendered to yours. But God makes it very clear that I am sovereign, I'm involved, I'm personal. The reason why people get mercy, well, according to Romans 9.15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He is sovereign over the dispensing of good things. And many people are, are, are troubled by this, right? If God is sovereign over the dispensing of good things, if I have no control, then, then I'm just a puppet. I'm just an automaton. I have lost my free agency and my free will. If I don't have any meaningful input. But you know what? You can't be totally free and have God be totally free at the same time. You can't be sovereign and have God be sovereign at the same time. One has to yield to the other. And if God is a slave to your choices... He's a slave to your inputs. He's a slave to your righteous deeds. And he has to give you what you earn. He is diminished. He is diminished. See, God being sovereign means he can't be obligated. 
Now, I remember my first job, I was a dishwasher at Joe's Barn Country Buffet, which is, like, of all first jobs, it's, it's the job that makes you want to get another job. <laughs> because, you know, when people eat at a buffet, it's not like they lick their plates. They go back for seconds, and they get jello and mashed potatoes and swirl it around with a chicken leg and leave it there for you to clean up. Why? They paid for it. <laughs> My second job was at Farmore, a big pharmacy superstore where I would check out people and not make eye contact with them as many things came across the scanner. I would labor Wonder, why am I doing this job? And then two weeks later, something wonderful happened. I would receive an envelope. I'd open the envelope, and there would be a check for four twenty-five dollars an hour. <laughs> I know. That was enough to buy you a, a great value meal at McDonald's and a Sunday. But what I started to realize is that the more I worked, I put Joe's Country Buffet in my debt. You can obligate people with your works. And that's the appeal of certain religions. If I do these sacraments, God's obligated to bless me in this way. If I pray this way, do these works, live the right way, conduct my dating relationships in the right way, raise my kids in the right way, God is obligated to give me prosperity. But that's not the testimony of Scripture. God is going to go by His plan, not yours. Isaiah 4, 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times things not yet done. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Instead of trying to manipulate God into doing what you please, a high view of God means you understand that God is going to do what he pleases. And no matter what, I will worship him, honor him, seek to glorify him. See, the second problem with the just world hypothesis is it diminishes the gospel. If you believe that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people, you believe that there is such a thing as good people. Now, for those of you who have self-esteem problems, brace yourself. <laughs> Romans 3, 10. Okay. Are you a good person? None is righteous. Well, I, I'm kind of righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you still think you're good? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. So still think you're righteous? There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, if you believe that bad things happen to bad people, then you can deceive yourself into thinking that this passage does not apply to you. And if you think that you're not a bad person, you're actually a good person, then you won't think that you need forgiveness and a Savior, right? Like one of the great passages in Scripture is Ephesians 2, where Paul shares about our saving relation with God, and he reminds us that 
that we were at one point in time dead in our trespasses and sins, enslaved to the prince of power in the air. We were rebellious, separated from God. But God, 2-4, Ephesians 2-4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Right? God, despite your sin, sent his son to live the life you should have lived and die the death you should have died. On the cross, he paid for your sin in his place so that you might be saved by his wrath. And, and do you acquire this by good works? By performing certain sacraments? No. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace means that his work of salvation is a gift. You didn't earn it. You can't obligate God to give it to you. It truly is a gift. God loves you in spite of you. Well, that doesn't sound very appealing. Well, if God loved you because of you, what happened if you would change? If a husband loved you because you're beautiful, what happens if you become disfigured in an auto accident? The wellspring of God's love for you is anchored in his eternal goodness. I always like to say there's nothing that you can do that can make God love you less. And there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. God loves you as much as he can and is able to. And God's love is imminent, infinite. And you're objects of that right now. Regardless of what you do. In spite of what you do. Salvation is not a reward for good behavior. It is a, a gift. And the only reason why you have that gift and somebody else doesn't is because of the mercy of God. Not because you are a righteous person. And thirdly, a just world hypothesis diminishes the sufferer. If you believe that suffering is a unique consequence for your sin, you send a crushing message to people who suffer. Becoming a Christian does not mean that you escape suffering. It does mean that your suffering will have a happy ending. It does mean that God will use your suffering for your good. It does mean that at the end of time, all suffering will be past tense. But in the here and now, suffering does happen. Sometimes suffering happens to righteous people to make them more fruitful. Sometimes suffering happens to restore someone who's a little bit wayward. And sometimes people suffer as a consequence for their sin. But instead of trying to figure out which is which for other people, right, Christian love and compassion wants to minister to people in their suffering. And when you have an idea that people are getting what they deserve, it leads to awful results. I came across an article written by an author who uh, spent her life work studying prosperity theology. You might have heard of it. It's the idea that if you name it, you can claim it. That if you have enough faith, God will give you health, God will give you wealth. And it's, uh, it's a theology that has infected many churches across the country, and it is absolutely devastating to people who suffer. This author was diagnosed with cancer 
and she saw prosperity theology in a whole new way. And this is what she writes. The prosperity gospel holds to this illusion of control until the very end. If a believer gets sick and dies, shame compounds the grief. Those who are loved and lost are just that. Those who have lost the test of faith. In my work, I have heard countless stories of refusing to acknowledge that the end had finally come. An emaciated man was pushed about, was pushed about a megachurch in a wheelchair as churchgoers declared that he was already healed. A woman danced around her sister's deathbed shouting to horrified family members that the body can yet live. There is no graceful death, no art of dying in the prosperity gospel. There are only jarring disappointments after fevered attempts to deny its inevitability. The prosperity gospel has taken a religion based on the contemplation of a dying man and stripped it of all of its call to surrender all. Perhaps worse, it has replaced Christian faith with the most painful forms of certainty. The movement has perfected a rarefied form in America's addiction to self-rule, which denies much of our humanity, our fragile bodies, our finitude, our need to stare down our deaths at least once in a while, and to be filled with dread and wonder. At some point, we must say to ourselves, I'm going to need to let it go. Right? Tragedy is not something we can avoid at all costs. Our days are, are numbered. And yes, barring the Lord returning, you will die, some sooner than others. But ultimately, that is the, the sovereign choice of the Lord of the universe who loved you enough to send a son to die for your sins and to redeem you and rescue you. And if you're a Christian, you have that kind of hope. But for the rest of you who are outside the faith, every death is a warning sign to you. The teaching of tragedy is that unless you repent, you're next. And instead of pushing it away, not letting yourself think about it, it's probably time to just come to terms with the fact that death comes for us all and what happens after death, what happens to your body, what happens to your soul. And we have a reliable, credible witness who not only died but came back from the dead and tells us about the hope to come. In the end, when you believe in him, you will inherit a world and a kingdom without tragedy. For goodness is given to all people, not because we are by nature good, because we have a good and glorious God who found a way to redeem us through a good and glorious son and by believing in a good and glorious gospel. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are grateful uh, for the teaching of tragedy and just the knowledge that even though tragedy will come for us at some point in time, it's not the end of the story because you intervened. I pray for anybody going through tragedy right now that this would be comforting for them, that they will seek to glorify you in this, that they'll know that when you repent, many things change, including precious promises and hopes given to us. I pray for those of us who are living in good health that you will restrain the urge to attribute the blessings of our life to our good behavior, but attribute them to you, our good and gracious God. 
understanding that should they be taken away, you are still a good and gracious God. I pray for those who are on the outside that they will be drawn to this message, that they will know that death is coming for them, and this will lead them to contemplate their own demise and look to the hope given in the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.